This is the last sermon series in the sermon going through 1 Corinthians. And so we're not going to go through chapter 16. You've got to read that on your own. You can do that over the Easter holidays, right? So chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. As we think about Easter, as we think about the resurrection, as we think about Jesus' death, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is one of the great chapters in all of the Bible with one of the great early hymns, one of the great proclamations on Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Are you excited about Easter? All right, I think we're going to have fun today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We, get, we have two problems. We have two problems that we can't solve. First of all, we have a sin problem. Second of all, we have a death problem. All of you are going to die. I know it's really sorry to give you that diagnosis today, but all of you are going to die unless Jesus raptures us up and that happens before then. But it's pretty sure you're going to die at some point. You can't fix that. You also have a sin problem that you can't fix. You have a problem because Jesus is a perfect standard. God is holy. God is perfect. One sin, one sin places us against God and in opposition to the God that created us. We can't fix that sin problem. I can't fix it. You can't fix it. As good as you may think you are, and some politicians have said they're good enough, they're going to walk straight into heaven because of their works, but they're not because it's a perfect standard and one sin places us against God in need of a Savior. Today's sermon, it has two parts. The first part takes care of our sin problem. The second part takes care of our death problem. And so by the end of today's sermons, you have no real problems left. All of those finals, all of those papers, all of those grades that you're worried about, not real problems. You'll get through that because your two major problems of sin and death are conquered right here in the New Testament through Jesus' death and his resurrection. Would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's word as we look at 1 Corinthians 15? I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Dear Lord, today as we think about your death and your resurrection, I pray that you would just help us to give you glory. I pray that you would help us to focus on what your death means for us, and Father, to help us to live in the victory of the resurrection each and every day of our lives. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. We've gone through 1 Corinthians. We've talked about all the problems. We've gone through all the issues. We've had the difficult sermons. We've walked through that. And Paul, at the end of his letter, is coming back around, and he's saying to them, all right, we've talked about a lot of stuff, but here's what I want to do at the end of the letter that I'm writing to you. Now I would remind you, brothers, and so here I say this to you. We've talked about a lot of things in the sermon series through 1 Corinthians, But what it all comes back around to is that the gospel is our main purpose, the gospel is the ultimate purpose, and the gospel is what unites us together in mission and on mission for God to be part of his great mission throughout this earth. And Paul says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
because we are saved initially by grace. We live by grace. We are sanctified by grace. It all happens by grace. And so we look at what has taken place and we remember and we always go back and we look at the gospel. And if you're here today and the pressures of life are weighing down on you and the pressures of papers are coming in around you and the pressures of relationships or of what you're going to do once you walk across that stage at graduation or all of those pressures are coming in on you, then let me just say to you today, let me remind you of the gospel. This world is always going to have little things that want to get you depressed or want to pull you down or want to hold you back. But the glorious truth is no matter what happens to us in this life, we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and we have been saved by grace through faith so that our sin problem is taken care of, our death problem is taken care of, and one day we're going to be in heaven with him forever reigning and there's no problem in this life that should pull you into a deep, dark depression because when you look at it, this life is temporary. All they can do to us in this life is kill us and that unleashes us to go and be with Jesus. Jesus, and it's better to be with him anyway. And so if you're discouraged, take hope in the gospel. If you're depressed, take hope in the gospel. If you're feeling the stress of life, lean on Jesus. He's there for you. The gospel and the grace of this glorious message is always there for you. He says here, if you hold fast to the word I preach, unless you believed in vain. Oh, even Paul here puts a caveat, doesn't he? He puts that comma. He puts that comma because he realizes that not everybody has truly repented and believed in Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, don't deceive yourselves. Examine your own heart. Make sure that you have truly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there has been a time in your life that you've been convicted by your own sin, that you have repented, that you have said, not a magical formula of a prayer because there is no magic formula, not coming down to an altar because that's not what saves you, not taking a preacher by the hand because he has no special powers, he's not Harry Potter or anything like it, not going into the water because there's some magic water that has eternal life value because that's not what happens. But understanding that in your own heart and in your own mind, there's a real decision to say, I'm going to be on Jesus's team. I'm not playing for my team or the devil's team anymore. Jesus, I give my life to you. My life trajectory is now focused on you and for you. I repent of my sins. I put my faith and trust in you because that's what salvation is. That's what it's all about. And so I just urge you one more time before you leave for the summer, double check your own life and make sure that you have done that. And if you haven't, if it's been about religion, if it's been about rules, if it's been about checking boxes or impressing others, oh, brothers and sisters, I encourage you and I urge you, believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed today. And so here Paul reminds them with a caveat, unless you believed in vain. Here we get to the major section of this entire chapter. It's verses three through five. He has an introduction, and in the introduction it says, for I deliver to you as of first importance that which I received. And then there's two parallel statements. The first parallel statement is that Christ died for our sins The second parallel statement is that he was raised on the third day. So let's look at the introduction first. First on the introduction. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Paul delivered it. 
Paul also says in this verse what he received. So what does that tell us? Paul's not an inventor. Paul's not an originator. Paul is not a creator. Paul is simply a delivery person. I had pizza earlier this week. And so I ordered pizza. I love pizza. Really, really love the buffalo chicken pizza and meat lovers pizza and basically any other kind of pizza. But I ordered pizza. When it was delivered, do you know what I want when somebody delivers my pizza? I want you to deliver it hot. I want you to deliver it fast. And I don't want you to mess with it. It's not your job, right? What Paul's saying here is we are pizza delivery boys and girls for the gospel. That's it. That's your new title. You get on a plane, you're traveling, somebody says, what do you do? I deliver pizzas for the gospel. Pizza delivery person for the gospel. What does that mean? And then you get to tell them about the gospel. So, see, it's a great way to share your faith, right? That's right. At least one person agrees with me, and we're both crazy, so they're going to put us in a different section. Here's what I mean, though is we don't create the gospel. We, we didn't invent the gospel. We're not originators of the gospel. We are simply deliverers of the gospel. And what we have to do with this world is take the message hot with a passion in our hearts because we truly believe the gospel. And we got to get it to them quick before they die or pass away and stand judgment. And so we take the message with passion. We take it to them quickly and we don't mess with it. We don't try to improve upon the gospel. We don't try to rationalize the gospel. We take the message to a lost world and say to them, I've got good news for you. Jesus has solved all your problems. And that's what Paul is starting off here with his introduction to his main section. For I deliver to you, and notice what he says here, of first importance. Now that word can have two different meanings. First importance can mean it's the very first thing I say, or it can mean it's the most important thing I say. And I think Paul intended both when he's talking about it here. The first thing I say, and the most important thing I say, when I meet somebody new, the most important thing I can share with them is the gospel message. When I go somewhere to speak, the most important thing I can share is the gospel message. Now, you know what that means. You're already thinking it. If you go up to somebody and you say, hi, my name's Thomas. Did you know Jesus died for your sins? And people are gonna think you're weird, right? Yeah, People think you're weird anyway. You might as well make the most of it. (laughs) And so here's what I'm saying to you. As you go out, as you go places, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed to talk boldly about what Jesus has done in your life. Don't be afraid of what people are going to think about you because they're going to think it about you anyway. You go to a Christian university. You already have that label, right? So do I. So let's be bold in our faith. First importance. The most important thing we can do is share the gospel. And here is the message. Two parallel statements. First one is that Christ died for our sins. The second one is that he was raised on the third day. Both of these statements state in accordance with the Scriptures, in accordance with the Scriptures, and both of these statements have proof that prove the claim. The first claim is that Christ died for our sins. The proof, that he was buried. You don't bury people who are not dead, at least not without going to jail for it, right? And so, or writing horror novels about it or something, Christ was buried. It proves he was dead. The second one, he was raised on the third day, And the proof is that he appeared. 
He appeared to Cephas, then he appeared to the twelve, then he appeared to Paul, he appeared to 500, most of whom are still alive. You've got the proof there of what took place. So these are your two statements, and in these two statements, you find the two points of this message, and two points is it, and then I'm not going to cover every single verse today because I want to focus on the main part of what Paul was talking about here. He delivered as a first importance that Christ died for our sins, substitutionary atonement, and the second, that Christ was raised a supernatural resurrection. So here we see that Christ died for our sins. The word for there is huper. Huper in the Greek is a preposition that can mean in our place or for our sakes, for or in place of. It's not anti, which is a different preposition that he could have chosen. It's an intentional choice here. And Greek scholars, if you study the the textbooks, will tell you this is the preposition of substitutionary atonement. If you were to look in the book of Philemon, verse 13, or if you were to look in Romans, you would find that there are some places where this preposition can only mean substitution. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying that Christ died. And why did Christ die? He died for our sins. He died in my place, and he died for my sake. And so the message of Easter, the message of Good Friday, is a message that Jesus, the God-man, died for my sin. He paid the price that I couldn't pay. He did what I couldn't do when he stood there on the cross in my place with his arms stretched out and freely laid down his life because no man could take it from him. And in that instance, there was a substitutionary death. He paid that penalty, and he did it in my place. And that's why we're here today, and that's why we worship him, and that's why we serve him, is because Christ loved us so much, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the message of the gospel. You know, there are days that you wonder, does anybody really love me for me? Does anybody really care about me just for me, not for what I can do, not for other things, but just, just me. And this chapter has a resounding yes for you today to say that Jesus, the God that created you, cared enough for you that he came to this life as a baby. He lived a perfect, sinful life. And he said, I love you enough that I'm going to bear your penalty and I'm going to pay that price and I'm going to be your substitute, and I'm going to conquer sin and conquer death so that when Jesus looks at those who have repented and put their faith and trust in him, he no longer sees, God no longer sees your dirty, sinful self, but he sees Jesus who loves you completely and perfectly just as you are, sinner and all, with all of your problems, with all of your sin, with all of your evil thoughts and frustrations, with all of your issues. Jesus loves you just like you are right now with a perfect love. And so anytime you start feeling depressed you start getting down, you start wondering, does somebody love me? Look to Jesus because Jesus is there and he loved you enough that he died in your place and for your sake. It's the God we serve. It says in accordance with the scriptures. So the question then arises, what scriptures? Well, when you look at what scriptures, here's just a couple that I have listed that Paul may have been thinking about. 
Psalm 22, 18 says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 34, 20, He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 53, 12, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Zechariah 12, 10, When they looked on him on whom they had pierced. Do you think that what happened on the cross was an accident? Do you think it was an accident that even John talks about that as they came around to break the knees of those who were hanging on the cross, that Jesus gave up his spirit and breathed his last, and he breathed his last before they broke the bones so that it would be fulfilled that not a bone was to be broken. And they took the spirit of hate, and that spirit of hate kissed the blood of love as they jabbed it into his side and fulfilled the prophecy that he was pierced for our transgressions. And Jesus hung there with two thieves, and as he hung there. He was hung there for a reason so that it would be known that he was crucified with transgressors. All of the things that happened were prophesied in the Old Testament. Thousands of years before they came to pass, we have scriptures that tell us of what was going to take place. It's the proof. It's the confirmation of the gospel and the message in which we believe. And it should give us boldness today to know that we have a story that is the ultimate truth. And in the face of all skeptics, in the face of all of those who want to doubt, we look and we say the Old Testament prophesies and tells us of a coming king who died in our place and for our sakes according to the scriptures. That should excite us. should give us confidence. should give us a life trajectory of assurance in Jesus Christ. And there's proof. He was buried. You don't bury live people. You only bury dead people. So those who want to say, oh, well, you know, he was just swooning. He just passed out. He didn't really die. They wrapped him up, and they put him in a tomb, and they laid him there. He was dead. He died for you and for me. That's Friday. The story doesn't end there, does it? Paul continues on. He says here, He was raised on the third day. Now, why does Paul say on the third day? We don't know for sure. But I happen to think it's an allusion back to Jesus in the Gospels where he says, you're not going to receive a sign, no sign, but the sign of Jonah. Jonah, who was swallowed by a great fish and spit back up on the third day. And he said, you destroy this temple and I will rebuild it on the third day. And he was talking about the temple of his body, but they didn't realize that that's what he was talking about. And I think Paul is making reference here to the fact that he was raised on the third day, saying, Jesus told you the only sign you were going to get is the sign of Jonah. And it was on the third day. He told you you destroyed the temple, the truth temple, the ultimate temple, and three days later, he's going to build it back. And here, exactly what happened on Easter Sunday morning is that he rose from the grave. God raised him from the grave, and on the third day, that's when it happened. I think that's what Paul's doing here. And so we have our second breakdown here of a supernatural resurrection. What verses was he talking about? Well, the early church fathers loved to quote Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. And it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. Psalm 1610 is also quoted, and it's even quoted in the book of Acts as they're preaching sermons, where he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. As we look at different scriptures which talked about the resurrection, and I think that's why the third day is in there. And as the proof of that second point on the resurrection, he says there in verse 5, He appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. And then Paul says, He appeared to me as one born out of time. We have a supernatural resurrection that takes place. There's also something else I want you to look at in the supernatural resurrection. It says that he was raised on the third day. Now, all of the verbs in this portion of Scripture are past tense verbs, except for this was raised, which is a perfect tense verb. Now, why does that matter? A past action is something that happened in the past, A perfect action is something that happened in the past that has continuing consequences. So, for example, Christ died. Christ appeared. But Christ was raised. He died in the past. It's an event that occurred. He appeared. It's an event that occurred. He was seen. But the fact that Christ has risen is something that happened in the past that has continuing consequences on us. Why was the resurrection necessary? I think the resurrection was necessary for a multitude of reasons. But among those reasons, we have to understand that first, it proved Jesus' claim to deity. Jesus said, I'm God. They said, you can't say that. That's blasphemy. He said, hold on, I'll show you. He got up from the grave. He was raised from the dead. Nobody else has ever done that before. Jesus, being fully man and fully God, was able to do that. He paid our penalty, but he was fully God. God raised him from the dead. It proves that Jesus was deity. It proves that God accepted the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross for our sins. It was an acceptable sacrifice. And it also proves that Paul states later in this book that all of us are going to be resurrected so that death has been conquered. That's why the resurrection is so important. And when you look back over the history of the Bible, the whole Bible points to this event. You think back to the Garden of Eden and to the fact that, that Jesus took and, and God skinned the, the lambs and clothed them and skinned them with the animal skins after the transgression took place. You move forward and you come to Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham has Isaac there on the altar, and he's getting ready to sacrifice him. But there's a ram that's caught in a thicket by the horns so that it's not blemished, so that it's still perfect, and he's able to substitute that as a sacrifice. You move forward and you think about the Passover, and it's the blood of the lamb that's spread on the doorpost. And as you spread that blood, the death angel passes over that particular house, and the firstborn is not killed. You move forward and you look at the sacrificial system and it's by the shedding of blood that there is remission of sin and it all points forward and you continue to look and you see in Ruth the kinsman redeemer where we have Boaz who redeems Ruth and we learn that that's pointing forward to the ultimate kinsman redeemer that will redeem us and you move to the book of Hosea and you see someone who buys back and ransoms out of slavery his own 
wife. And we see that that's a picture or an image of Jesus Christ who will ransom us and who will buy us back. And all of that Old Testament trajectory, it points us. And when Jesus shows up and John the Baptist looks and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus, the perfect Lamb, the sacrifice, and even the book of Revelation that tells us, Behold, the Lamb. And we see that the whole story of the Bible is pointing to these verses about Jesus, the perfect lamb who paid the penalty for me and for you and died in our place and for our sakes. That's what we're talking about this morning. That's the gospel. That's the whole Bible. That's your reason for living, your reason for being. That's the story of Jesus. Here Paul says, substitutionary death and a supernatural resurrection. Paul tells us later on in this chapter, and I'm not going to go through all the verses, that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But if Christ has been raised, then he says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He gives us an illustration of how seeds, things have to die for the seeds to be planted for other things to spring forth. And he talks about that that's Jesus and that he died. And he talks about the spiritual man versus the natural man with the first Adam and the second Adam. And all he's pointing to in all of those illustrations is the fact that Jesus' death proves that we're going to have a resurrection, that we have a future hope, that we have a life with him and a life with Jesus. So have you ever wondered, is it really true? You ever had those doubts? You ever wondered what happened to the body of Jesus? Think about it. If the Romans had taken the body, what would have happened? Well, the Romans don't like rebellions in any sort. And if they had taken the body from the tomb, they would have hung it up in the public square for everybody to see to demonstrate the fact that you do not rebel against Rome and this is a crushed rebellion and there is the proof of it. What if the Jews had killed Jesus or taken the body? And if the Jews had taken the body out of the tomb and that's really what happened, what would they have done with it? Oh, I think they would have put it on display as well. I think they would have said, see, here's the heretic that you believed in. Don't believe in heresies or don't believe in those who have blasphemed. But the Jews didn't produce the body, did they? Oh, but people say it's the disciples. The disciples took the body and stole the body and hid the body away so that they could then go about and preach their message. But every one of the disciples but one died a martyr's death. And the one that didn't die a martyr's death ended up exiled on an island so he could write the book of Revelation. Is that a prosperity theology? I don't think so. Who would hide a body so that they could then die for a lie? You wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. That's ludicrous. And so we're left with one response. The one response we're left with is there was no body in the tomb because God raised Jesus from the dead and he rolled the stone back, not because Jesus needed the stone back to get out, but because we needed the stone rolled back so we could see that he wasn't there. That's the reason Jesus did that, or God rolled the stone back. We serve a risen Savior. He's not in a grave. 
We don't go back and worship a grave. In fact, when you go back and do your tours of Israel, we even argue about where the grave is. We argue about where he died. We don't know for sure because that's not important. The important part is he's not in the ground. He's not in a tomb. But he's at the right hand of the Father and he's coming again with power and he's going to set everything right. And that's the message of the gospel and that's the message of our future and that's why we have hope and that's why we're here and that's what we believe. Do you believe that this morning? You know, there's, there's a poem that was written. It's called Sunday's Coming. I took some liberties with it and changed it and adapted it. I just want to read that to you as we close this morning. Jesus is praying. Peter is sleeping. Judas is betraying. The guards are seizing. The disciples begin scattering. Concern is abounding but Sunday is coming. Caiaphas and the council are conspiring. Peter is denying. Pilate is contemplating. The crowd is vilifying. The verdict is condemning, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday. They robe my Jesus in scarlet. They crown my Jesus with thorns. They mock my Jesus in words. Disbelief is surrounding, but Sunday is coming. It's still Friday. See there on the road to Calvary, Jesus, he is walking. The cross he is carrying. His body is stumbling. His sweat and blood are dripping. Golgotha is nearing, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The devil is winning. The Pharisees are celebrating. Death is approaching, but Sunday is coming. It's Friday. And the soldiers nail his hands. The soldiers nail his feet. The soldiers stand his cross. The soldiers cast their lots and tick tock. Sunday's still coming. It's Friday. The Father is forsaking. My penalty, Jesus, is paying. For my sin, Jesus is atoning. The Lamb of the world, they are slaying. Jesus begins speaking. It is finished. The sky begins darkening. The earth begins quaking. The veil begins tearing. And Sunday, it's still coming. It's Friday. Hope is faint. Death has come. The sun has set. Has the devil won? Jesus is buried, but it's only Friday, and Sunday is coming. It's Saturday. The disciples are hiding. The followers are mourning. The Roman soldiers are guarding, but the angels are anticipating because they know Sunday's coming. It's Sunday. And the stone is rolling, and the soldiers are falling, and Mary is seeing, and Peter is running, and Jesus is missing, because, oh, my friends, let me tell you, it's Sunday. Hallelujah, it's Sunday. And Herod couldn't kill him. Satan couldn't conquer him. Death couldn't defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. Jesus is risen. Praise God that Sunday was coming. And this Sunday, 
It's still Resurrection Sunday, and we are declaring that Jesus is still living. Beside the Father, He's still sitting. Sinners, He's still saving. His church is still proclaiming. The kingdom is coming, and we must keep on telling about that glorious Sunday and the King that is coming. Up from the grave he arose, a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you demonstrated for us. We thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you for your resurrection, your gospel. God, we thank you. And Lord, as we contemplate your death and your resurrection this weekend, may we do so with a realization of our own sinfulness, but also a realization of the joy of the victory over death and hell and the grave and Satan. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.